Welcome to the Bar Hacks Podcast. Engaging interviews, plus tips and strategies to navigate your bar or restaurant business towards sustainable success. Now, here's your host, hospitality industry veteran, journalist, and editor, David Klempt. Hey, welcome back to the Bar Hacks Podcast. I hope you're well wherever you're listening from. We have a very interesting guest with a pioneering brand. We have Dragos Axinte. Did I say that right? I just realized that I never asked that. you. Yeah, it's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> uh, the CEO and founder of Novo Fogo Cachaça, which is produced in Brazil. It's the national spirit of Brazil. I believe that Capinha is the national cocktail. Right. Uh, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you. Hello from Seattle. How is Seattle right now? Oh, it's, uh, it's rainy as usual. So now that we're talking about Seattle, actually, that brings me to my very first question. And I normally ask, you know, oh, how'd you get into hospitality? But your journey is very interesting. You grew up in Romania. At 18, I believe you go to attend the University of Washington. That somehow leads you to Brazil and Nova Foga. So I have to ask yeah. how, how that happened. Well, it's a series of many decisions over the decades. And I do, I do kind of plan my life in five-year increment, five increments. And I try to make sure that I live mostly for today and a little bit for tomorrow. So uh, there have been a bunch of setups that have led me to today. But it, it started when I was a kid growing up in Eastern Europe in the communist bloc. And I learned about uh, this, uh, this man named Pelé and became a big fan of Brazilian soccer and then of Brazil. And I made this mental note that I would go to this faraway country someday and, and visit it, even if you were on a different planet. And so uh, the fall of communism, or a couple of years after, my family immigrated to the United States. We lived in LA actually for the first year and then up to Seattle and just trying to make a new life, you know, kind of go from oppression to opportunity. And we eventually became entrepreneurs for the company named Cold Heat. That taught me a lot of things, taught me how to build the global supply chain and how to sell to national retailers and how to raise money and how to work with the board of directors. And it was an engineering company, but it was an innovation company as well. And it kind of drew from my science background from, from high school in, 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 in this communist country that took science very seriously. And uh, at some point along the way, though, my, it wasn't really my passion, it was something I was doing for my family, but at some point my passion uh, kind of started to rise because I did visit Brazil for cold heat. We were expanding very fast. We we're looking for a number of factories and we ended up finding three of them in the south of Brazil, in Porto Alegre. And I was in Porto Alegre for two days, literally two days. It took me a day to get there and a day to come back. But those two days in Brazil made me fall in love with Brazil and Brazilians uh, beautiful inside and out, and their national spirit, cachaça, and also the, the churrasco, the steak of San Brazil, that was of high interest to me. And so I came back from Brazil from that trip in 2005 with an appreciation for cachaça and the vast and deep world that it, it provided, hundreds of years of history and just kind of in, in the middle of the entire matrix of culture, uh, Brazilian culture and, and history. And just watched that for a few years as an interested consumer trying to find cachaça in the United States. And it was clearly a struggle for many years. It's a new category here. It started around 2005 or so. So, I mean, five years later, there was not much. So um, eventually it, it seemed like an opportunity 
to to bring something from outside in, from a context that it made it appear ordinary because there was so much of it into a contest with context where it became unusual and interesting if it had the right the right story and the right package and that's what I've done before with call heat uh, that's what I call innovation moving one thing from an environment to another so some point along the way my wife and I decided to create a brand and find partners in Brazil that would um, work with us essentially as a family in telling the story that was emerging in our heads as the most important story to tell which was the Brazil through its decisions on managing land resources controls the future of the earth and the cleanliness of the air and probably didn't know this but Brazil through the land that is already exposed without having without doing any deforestation could feed the entire planet 400 years should it make the right decisions and historically a lot of foreigners went there and made decisions for Brazil and that didn't go very well so there was a story of deforestation and degradation just kind of growing up until 2012. So we found, found ourselves in, in the middle of an important context. And we thought there are leaders in the agricultural world of Brazil that deserve to be elevated. And if we can help them become economically and financially successful, perhaps others around them will follow suit, will with it, we'll, we'll, we'll see that doing you can do well by doing right, right? So that became the mantra for this business, actually. So uh, we brought all of our interest in the rainforest, in, in, in preservation, in the animal and plant world, and soccer and music and film, all of those just kind of zeroed in on this one place in the Atlantic rainforest in San Brazil. And we became partners with this family, and this is how it all started. So safe to say that Nova Fogo, it's, the brand has always been focused on sustainability, responsible stewardship, and reaching carbon neutrality. Is that, is that? Yeah, I think carbon neutrality was not understood at the time very well. Sustainability as a word when we started this business in 2010 was it just meant different things to different people. I think it still does. There's no certification for sustainability yet, although there are some components for, for, for it. Um, but yes, the idea was that environmental stewardship has to come from within. You can't tell people what to do. You don't go into your neighbor's yard and say, you know what? I think you should redo the landscaping over here. You just have to allow them to do the right thing by incentivizing the right thing. And believe it or not, economic success is an incentive, <laughs> you know? Um, so when, when as, as we started this business and eventually the brand owners from the U.S. and the distillery owners from Brazil became one company. In 2015, we merged, became one family with, with uh, homes on, on two countries that gave us a lot of visibility to all aspects of the our own supply chain, right? From, from the sourcing of the bottles all the way to the distribution in the market. And we started to tie it together. We saw that this word sustainability to us meant three different things. Number one was that we had to protect that environment, natural environment around us, because it gives us, and I like to talk a bit about this, it gives us the product quality that we have in our life. The second thing was that we um, felt the absolute impetus to invest in our community. And by community, I also mean our team as a subset of our community. It's a small community, 15,000 people living in this small town in the mountains in the jungle. It's a very in interesting, difficult, and specialized life that unites the people there. 
And uh, without the team, we couldn't have sugarcane. Without the sugarcane, we couldn't have kashas and so on, right? And the third thing was that, just as I said, we had to figure out a way to be economically viable as a company and make money from it. And so I truly believe that these three things have to happen all at the same time. You can't have one without the others. You can't have two without the others. If you don't have money to pay for things, to employ people, then it's going to go away. And so this combination of these three objectives became the filter for our making big decisions, strategic decisions for the long term, or small decisions for everyday everyday things. We had to make a lot of decisions during COVID, by the way, that prioritized team, environment, and, and business, you know, in that particular order. And so, uh, yeah, I would say that our thinking evolved since the beginning, but it, it is the same. In fact, I've gone over some of the presentations from day one, and you, it, I'm so pleased that they basically speak of the same things that we're speaking about today. We're just more eloquent today. And in terms of balance, I mean, you also... I think it's earlier this year, you mentioned that people have told Brazil what to do. You have to do this to protect the rainforest. You should behave this way, which you said is not a great idea. But you also have said that as far as business in Brazil, the Brazilians have already been for, for a very long time striking a balance between business community and the environment. And so I wanted to ask how Novo Fogo embodies that same approach to business. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair. And the way we discovered that was kind of a, a bit of a rude, but slightly pleasant awakening too. And when, and when we went uh, at the beginning to Brazil to speak to various producers and find our kindred spirits, and eventually we did, we had this idea that we're going to show these folks how to make organic cachaça because we knew that organic had certain market uh, cachet that, you know, um, 80% of consumers prefer the organic option if it doesn't cost more than 50% over the others and so, and so on. And we wanted some that told the story of sustainability and one some that told the story of the simple life and simple people. And we were prepared with binders of presentations to show them how that's done. And then we got there and I remember the first meeting in Mojetes was in what later became our distillery in this conference room with the windows open and everything you see is jungle around you. And you can hear the birds chirping outside. The birds are our insecticides, uh, I know now, but uh, they were chirping and we were talking, we were showing our business plan and the, this team of people said, this is the same business plan that we have. And, and we started to speak about organic and said, oh yeah, we've been doing organically. How, how else could we do? Like, you're crazy to try to bring fertilizers into this land. You're crazy to burn down uh, sugarcane when you are literally eight feet from the rainforest. And, it was just natural decisions that happened because of the place where they had evolved, where they were living too. And, and I heard from a, a fellow distiller in a different country uh, once that some, you know, a lot of producers are organic because they can't afford fertilizers or they don't know what to get fertilizer. They, you know, it's just not part of their nature, right? It may not be organic certified, but it is still organic. And so that reshaped our thinking about what we were going to provide to this business. It wasn't mentality. Mentality, in fact, started to come the other way. The foundation of our brand became this concept that people in Mojetes created called La Vida My Simplest, the simpler life, which says in your life, you have a lot of priorities and you have to prioritize them uh, in a way that allows a high satisfaction of life. 
and in Mojetes they are family and friends, nature, which means mountain, rainforest, and ocean, food and drink, soccer, and music, right? And everything else is just dust, dirt. It just dissipates it. It's, it's nothing that you want to spend time on. So the, the fewer priorities you have, the higher percentage of them you accomplish and the happier you wake up in the morning. And so that became a foundation for how we were going to tell our story to the selling market. And we started to think about what can we do to, to, to help support this and make it better. And, and it was very simple. It was a commercial opportunity from the United States and Western Europe. It was investment in, that, in, in, in infrastructure. Um, we took uh, the, the product line and the sugarcane plantation from organic to 100% organic certified which took a little more investment, a little more time, but it wasn't impossible. We, we created this concept of zero waste that was probably there at that point in time. We just started to count a little bit more. We created the idea that we can become a carbon negative company by keeping track of what's happening on our property and around us. We brought in some scientists to help, help us with tree management. Um, those things just take an interest in them and some money and some time, but they can be done by anybody really. And what we found ourselves doing was that we would speak more at meetings about trees than about sales, which is a weird thing to do, but we believe that it pays. You invest in your infrastructure that depends on trees and the product happens and then the sales happen because you also have a brand story to tell alongside that product. So there's the cycle that feeds itself we feel very fortunate to have ownership from the plant in the ground all the way to the bottle on the shelf. It gives us a clear visibility to all the things, opportunities and challenges that happen from origin to destination. It gives us uh, transparency in the way we tell those stories. It gives us rich number of stories. And also it just, it just kind of keeps on our toes, makes us more honest, you know, and, and, and leads to conversations like this where I can tell you everything you want to know about our business. Well, speaking of the bottles on the shelf, you produce the world's first ever carbon neutral spirit, which <laughs> on its own is impressive. But then I wanted to ask you, even conceptualizing a product like that, what are the lenses that you have to view these things through so they do match up with your mission and your brand story, but also are something a bartender wants to introduced to their guests what the guests want to drink but they're also profitable because i think a lot of people do think oh carbon neutrality organic certified if i want to be eco-friendly it's far more expensive to do what i'm already doing and I, we discussed before that's that's really a myth that it's so expensive to do the right thing yeah that's right it's not i really do believe that the first and biggest hurdle is your willingness to look into it and spend the time to understand the issue. And that's actually what we did. And so carbon neutral is something that, believe it or not, can be qualified differently by different people. So let me explain what we mean by that. As a company, from the moment that we start working until the moment that we exit our work, we are a carbon negative company. And that means that we absorb more carbon from the atmosphere than we put out. And that is done through um, the fact that we own a large piece of land with a lot of young trees, jungle, that we're not cutting down. In fact, we're planting new trees and they absorb a bunch of carbon from the atmosphere. 
all of our operations zero waste, so there's very minimal emissions. We have a reforestation project that is adding to this and is growing actually within our state, and we hope to make it a national program as well. And then whatever we can offset, or we can't uh, reduce like travel. You know, if I fly from Seattle to New York, that's a lot of carbon. Or to Brazil and so on. We buy offsets, carbon offsets from meaningful pro uh, projects around the world. And so once we started to do that calculation, we found it's very difficult. It's very difficult to understand what a bunch of trees on one acre of rainforest in Brazil absorb. And that, that is different from a bunch of trees in one acre by Mount Rainier here in Washington State, an entirely different ecosystem. So they have to be calculated, which is why we need scientists. But uh, we did that calculation. We understood our carbon footprint and made sure it was negative. It took us two years to do those calculations, by the way. And we were very skeptical uh, until we like triple checked everything because you can't make a lot of mistakes. This is new science, you know? But eventually we came out and said, we're comfortable with this. We're, we're carbon negative. Uh, we have a little cushion there beyond neutral to say that we're negative and we feel good about it. And then the next step came. And the next step says, all right, what about what happens before what our company does and after what our company does? Because when we put a product in the market, it's not just us participating in that. There is a bottle manufacturer that makes that bottle that requires a lot of energy. And then it requires more energy to bring it to our distillery and case makers and cork makers and all those different things that use trucks and ships and, 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 and trains. And then once we ship the product, it goes from our distillery to the port and somewhere in the world, usually the US, these days to Kentucky and, and to uh, Northern France for distribution. And from there it gets put on trucks and it goes different parts of the United States and of Europe. And then it goes into warehouses. They have their own energy requirements and it goes on trucks to deliver to accounts and their salespeople who take samples around. All these things matter. So we began, began the process of trying to understand all of those things. And obviously you can't be exact about it. Um, and you have to rely on some estimates and you have to rely on some formulas. And there are many different entities providing different kinds of formulas. So we just kind of dove into that. And for another year or so, we try to understand how to calculate these numbers that are partners upstream from us and downstream from us, so upstream our suppliers and downstream our distribution partners um, that they might in fact create in terms of carbon emissions. And then we came up with, we came up with some numbers. And I know our, our uh, listeners can't see this, but uh, we'll, we'll refer to these numbers. Very interesting stuff that's, that, that we found out and, and here are some ways to look at that, a couple of different ways. If you break it up into upstream us and downstream, what you find is that in the total percentage of 100% of carbon emissions, we, the middle tier, are only about 21.5% of total carbon emissions. It's not surprising because we have these elevated business practices that reduce waste and so on. But you can see that there's a lot going on outside of it that most distillers just kind of ignore. They say, well, we're carbon neutral, but what happens with your distribution network? What happens with your bottom network? Where do those things come from? Are you paying any attention to those? Those things do matter. And then another way to look at it is by function. Production of the cachaça, production of the parts, the components, the bottles, and also all those things, warehousing and freight. And if you look at freight, especially for an imported product like ours, that's 48% of the total emissions. And that means ocean, truck, and train in the entire, in the entire cycle, upstream, upstream, and downstream. And so that, this leads to some, some decisions 
that we have to make about how to source things, where to source, where to source them from, how much recycled content is necessary in each of them, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to tell you, there are some things that truly are rounding errors, like bringing in cardboard boxes from our supplier in Kudichiba to our distillery, a 40-kilometer drive, that's nothing. But shipping from Brazil to the United States, that's a lot. We learned that the truck uh, freight is the most intensive way, whereas rail is the least intensive way, and ocean somewhere in the middle. So it leads us to make decisions that try to minimize them. So there's, we'll never achieve perfection. And that's a, that's a thing that I think everybody needs to understand. Sustainability is not an objective. It's a mentality. You work on it every day. You try to improve from yesterday's work. You'll never get there, though, right? Um, we're not perfect. We're far from it. We're, we have many gaps we're trying, to, uh, we're trying to bridge, but I think we're moving in the right, in the right direction. So for um, our most recent cachaça bottle, the bar strength one liter bottle, which is a silver cachaça. We did this calculation just for this product. It was hard enough. And we came up with 11.27 kilograms per case. So just, just under two kilograms per bottle, one liter bottle of total carbon emissions. And I'll buy offsets for that. Whatever is, you know, I mean, we're, we're, it's probably negative in that our part is actually offset by itself. But we're just to be safe, kind of round it, you know, take, take away the possible errors. We buy carbon offsets in a wonderful project that invests in this coffee farming region in Honduras that uh, has had a promise historically where the farmers were cutting down trees to make fire, to um, purify water for their coffee production because they didn't have water filters. Well, this project gives them water filters. Now they no longer cut down trees. So it's it's clean water and preserve the forest. It's, it speaks to our to our heart, and we're supporting this project with carbon offsets, and uh, and, and do many different things of that sort. So this product, we feel comfortable saying it is carbon neutral, truly carbon neutral from origin to destination. And I would encourage all of all of our peers, all distillers, and really all producers of all sorts to look at what happens upstream and downstream. From you. Hi there. Just a quick message before we get you back to this episode. If you're looking to take your bar, restaurant, or hospitality business to the next level, I mean to profits of 12 to 15% or more, it's time to take action. Let's start creating your roadmap to success with our proprietary strategies, tools, resources that will inspire your team, activate your potential, and lead your hospitality brand to margins you never thought possible. Visit krghospitality.com right after this episode for more information. Now, back to the Bar Hacks podcast. So on top of that, I was I was going to ask you the reception of bar strength, but to be honest, it's been a, a ridiculous two years. I don't think it's fair to ask anyone what their reception is for their new products. So instead, can you maybe explain, it doesn't have to be too in-depth, but when you buy offsets, I think people aren't exactly sure what that means, yeah. but you yeah. can invest in a project like you have in Honduras. So if you want to explain maybe some other projects you've seen that you would recommend or just what that process is. Sure. I don't think it's that difficult. Yeah, yeah no, this is new science as well. And 10 years ago, I, I wasn't trusting it. I didn't think that the companies who are in the carbon trade business were real. But there's been a huge evolution in understanding of this process. And I believe that you kind of have to look around a little bit, find your partner you trust, talk to them, uh, understand their own sources and how, how whom they're working with. And the more 
uh, buttoned up partners they have, the more that means that they that due diligence has been performed on them. But we did the same thing and we came to uh, really trust this company called Native. It's native.eco. They basically help you calculate your carbon emissions. And then they also help you find projects that line up with your mission. And they manage a number of projects all over the world. Literally, you know, from Africa to Latin America and even upstate New York for a while. Our first project that we invested in was a waste management site in Seneca, New York, upstate New York, that um, converted all that methane gas into electricity and also had a, has, actually is doing that still, as a private reserve for, for birds and plants, which is amazing. Like putting all that together in a waste management site is just incredible, right? And we were essentially donating money to them to allow them to reach their financial objectives, to invest in their infrastructure necessary to make a positive impact and essentially take away from others to make a negative impact to the environment, right? It's offset means righting the wrongs. It's not the best solution. The best solution is to reduce the wrongs first, to minimize the wrongs, but whatever can be rightened, you can offset, right? That project in Seneca is no longer accepting contributions, so we moved on to the Honduras project, but they're all over. Um, and I think, you know, you kind of have your pick. You just go and find something that makes sense to you, and they guide you every step of the way. And they would work with anybody, really, from, from producers to restaurants and bars and so on. And, but that is also something that we're, we're trying to accomplish on our own to create a bit of a, an advisory position to bars and restaurants that helps them understand how to reduce their carbon footprint and then how to offset whatever they can uh, minimize. So Nova Fogo is also known for using and they're sustainably sourced, but using exotic woods that uh -huh. yes. are native to Brazil. I mean, they're exotic because other countries don't have them or don't know about these woods. Do you think on top of them being unique and people just wanting to buy them and wanting to try them, that if a bartender has the right brand education, that being able to say this was aged in a zebra wood barrel can make a consumer want to become more environmentally involved or think, wow, if, if this goes away, it's not good for anybody. So how can I get involved? Such a big, big and complex topic, David. I know. Uh, this podcast <laughs> run for five or six hours, right? Because I have a lot. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the, with the story about when we were creating this company and the brand, we did want to speak about trees. And at the time, so this is 2009, 2010, there was a tradition in putting cachaça in this tree, a wood from this tree called Yekichiba Hosa, pink Yekichiba. A lot of tradition, decades of tradition, and this is a very hard wood that in fact doesn't really give the cachaça much color flavor, just almost takes the edge off. It's really more of a resting wood. And it was prevalent at the time, but I was reading a lot of, doing a lot of research and finding out that maybe they were, it was starting to move in the wrong direction from, from an endangerment standpoint. And I remember the first logo actually had a picture of this tree on it and not the current tree that we have on our logo, but it had this tree. And we decided this was a bad idea because there was something happening to that tree that probably wasn't going to allow it to uh, remain unthreatened for a long time. And we did not want to use it as our emblem for selling a product aged in that tree. It just seemed like a, counter, um, a counterproductive measure. So we took that out. 
And we picked the Pinero de Parana, the Pine of Parana, which is threatened but not used by Cachaça. It's in fact, there's a massive amount of effort to try to recreate and keep that species alive. And it's the symbol of the forest, reforestation efforts in the state of Paraná. It's a really great symbol for our state. But I'll tell you, that tree, Jequichibacosa, in the last 10 years, went from least concern to endangered in a matter of 10 or 12 years. And that is the story of native Brazilian hardwood trees. All of those are going in that direction because after 2012, that mentality of preservation shifted again in Brazil. There was too much economic incentive to do the wrong thing as opposed to the right thing, right? And, uh, and, and that pace has, has um, picked up intensity in, in the last couple of years again. And so at some point along the way, it just became obvious to us that we were not going to get into those species at all. And we have been studying them. Our master still has, you know, Makari, Jr., he taught cachaça production everywhere from everything from sugarcane agriculture to barrel aging at the university for two decades. And he had little barrels of every kind imaginable wood. We studied all those and we analyzed the pros and the cons and we said no to all of those. But then we realized that other producers were in fact pitching those threatened woods. And yes, they're interesting. And consumers were responding favorably to those and starting to ask for more and more of those. And to us, that seemed like the biggest threat of them all, to try to put a threatened wood tree as your uh, locomotive to your train means that you are headed for disaster. And perhaps it's not certain brands, but it's the entire category. If we're getting the consumers to expect more and more of those things that are becoming rarer and rarer, where do we go from here? Not only are we providing the wrong incentive for producers to cut trees down that should be cut down, but we may in fact run out of product at some point, right? And this is a 500 year uh, category we're trying to grow outside of Brazil now. So the need for sustainable choices was very obvious. And then what became obvious too was the need to tell the proper story about these woods that was not being told. And so we created these uh, expressions you're talking about that we call two woods as a tool for education. And so let me tell you about, about them. There are two woods because we have such few barrels, <laughs> literally one to six of each one of these barrels, because we have very high standards for how we source them. The zebra wood barrel, you mentioned that, actually had two. They came from a, an abandoned house. The walls of an abandoned house that was going to get knocked down, we actually recovered that wood, made into two barrels, 300 liters each, and we've been using those two barrels. And since then, one of them broke, so we only have one. And there's no way we're going to get another. Like we know of one tree, and believe it or not, zebra was not in danger, but it's still hard to find. There's one tree we found in the wild around us, and we are now planting seeds from that tree. We're trying to create a little, a little a forest of those. But um, there's no way we're going to cut down anything called zebra wood ever, right? And, and all of them have similar stories. So with so little available, especially as these things are hard and they take time and they, they don't bleed color and flavor very quickly, right? We start with oak and make repurpose bourbon barrels, which are the main type of barrels that you find in Cachaça in Brazil. Probably about 50% of Cachaça is aged in American oak. And it gives that flavor and, and foundation that consumers understand. And then we try to finish them for a short amount of time in one of these other uh, Brazilian native wood barrels that were sourced according to a very long list of requirements we have, which fall into three categories, legal, 
sustainable and ethical. And we see differences among all those three things, because even if it's legal and sustainable, it may, in our minds, may still be counterproductive because do you really want to source something that is so limited and just, even if it's legal, it's possibly legal because it hasn't been looked at in a long time. The situation has gotten worse, but the government doesn't know, right? And so to, to take it back to consumers, when we sell those products, which are like a few hundred cases per year, literally, we do it just as an accessory to telling the story that I just told you in different formats. And we have the story in every presentation in, on the website, in every brochure. It's just there a lot on the, on the label of the, of the, of the bottle and, and, and so on. And we think it is important for bartenders to have that story because if, if they have the story of, wow, this is delicious and it's exotic, they just want to show it to their guests as something rare and fun and neat. And you know what? There's rare whiskey, but that's because of time necessary, not because the barrels are uh, uh, endangered. You know, There's a different story there too. And so we're spending as much time and, and, uh, as we can to try to educate the trade about this more important story. And I think we've seen a tide at this point. It's hard to ignore these stories today. Five years ago, it was easier. But this year, you, you can't really do it. So, But it is a brick by brick kind of thing, you know. And, and our understanding of this changes all the time. And we're trying to make progress on, on where we go with it. And I would say that we're not going to grow this business, this aspect of our business very much. It's, it's very difficult to do it right. And at this point, we don't just accept the certificates of origin from the coopers that, yeah, this wood was sustainably sourced. We actually say, do you mind telling us who your mill was that sold you the wood? And then we go and visit the mill and then we check their sources and we check their papers and we talk to their investigators who give them their annual certification. And there are a lot of rules that most mills will not follow. And so only if we check all those marks on our list do we say, all right, we'll buy 10 barrels. Not, not a thousand, <laughs> right. something like that. So it is very complicated. I don't think anybody outside of Brazil could do it right because it takes so much legwork on the ground. And even those inside Brazil, they don't do it right sometimes because they don't have the information, sometimes because they don't care about the information because they, they want that commercial opportunity. But it's a complicated uh, thing. And I would say for bartenders and consumers, for that matter, buyers, everybody who consumes liquor, if they're, they're, they're buying something that was produced far away, it's harder to verify those claims. And I think asking more questions is going to give you some idea on whether there is a veil of mystery. If there is a veil of mystery, walk away. It's probably not done right, right? You, want, you want, in fact, want as a, as a buyer or consumer, you want to judge transparency, not claims, because anybody can make claims. And especially if they can be verified because the producer is a million miles away, right? You're not going to travel there. But the more questions you ask, the more answers you should get. And if you don't get them, just walk away. That is excellent advice. You know, that leads me to my next question. This is a lot of information. Like you said, it, it took you know, two years to really figure out how to approach this with Nova Fogo. To make things maybe easier for some operators, is there something a restaurant owner, a bar owner, a hotel group could do today to take the first step towards being more sustainable or being more responsible? And maybe that's based off, you know, you've been asked by a bar owner, is there something I can do right now to, to do this the right way and to right some of the wrongs? 
Yeah. I mean, that that's a loaded question too, because there's so many things you can do from sourcing products to your own business practices, how you make drinks and how you, you know, burning ice. But um, as far as my perspective comes from, the, the past question that you just had is important. And there's a lot of cachaça now that's coming to the United States and is aged in different kinds of woods. And it's very difficult to find information on what is okay and what is potentially not okay. And so uh, I think for that, the first place to look is our own website where we did a gigantic amount of research to put together the first database of environmental status statuses of uh, woods used in the cachaça industry. And you can see them here in, in graphic format with all the trees. It's, uh, it's nofogo.com slash trees where there's caberuva, it's least concern. And then there's canela, which is cinnamon, it's endangered. And castanera is vulnerable. And all these things with the Brazilian name, with the English name, the scientific name, and the best available status that we know which we aggregate from a number of different sources. Beyond Cachaça, one of the best uh, sources for, for this kind of thing is the IUCN Red List that I would encourage people to go to. It's got basically every species of plant and animal on the, on, on the planet. And you can see the status. It's very, very important though to look at the last time it was evaluated because you might find something that hasn't been evaluated in 20 years. You can pretty much guess that it's worse at this point, depending on the part you know, what geographical area it's in and so on. So those are easy things to do. And it doesn't give you a final answer, but it gives you a question that you can ask. How is the source? Please tell me, dear producer or, or salesperson. And I think, you know, imported products are important products. We need tequila, we need cachaça, we need pisco, all these things, and they have to be made in certain parts of the world. But there are questions that could be asked there too. How, you know, how are you making this? How, where are you getting your bottles from? Um, are you doing anything to offset or support the community? Just find out if the company is, has the right mentality and then whether they deserve your support. Because they, if, if they are the right kind of company and you did, do reward them with your purchase, they're going to take that money and they're going to put a part of it into making themselves better yet, making the community better yet. It's that cycle that keeps on, keeps on giving. So... I think, I think the best thing to do is try to understand the mentality of the producer, looking at that bottle, see if it reflects the place of origin or does it re reflect just the salesperson? Does it reflect just the importer? Does it reflect the commercial interest or does it reflect the place of origin, the, the people and the community that it comes from that produced it? Is it somehow invested back in that? And if it is, it's probably something you want to support. Before I before I have you go, because I, I can't keep you here all day. I know this is a, we have a, a lot of information we could we could get to. Nova Fogo, you have a, a wide range of cachaça. And so I wanted to ask you, and I know this is like saying what's your favorite kid, but uh, what are your what's your go-to cachaça in your line if you wanted to unwind or you were celebrating or you're out to dinner and is there a cocktail that you just think it really shines in? <laughs> It's like asking me which of my children I like more. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're blessed to have a lot of diversity in our line. And that is the diversity of cachaça in general. I see just so much between our unaged cachaça and, and, and some of the aged ones. And uh, one year in the barrel makes a big difference for you in the jungle and it's hot and it's humid and, and the liquid extracts a lot of color and flavor from it. But I, I'll, I, can, I can tell you a few general comments. Number one, 
In the south of Brazil, it truly is an oak-aged market. 98% of the cachaça consumed in the south is aged in oak. And the south means Sao Paulo and below. It's a very large population center. And so there, uh, historically speaking, that cachaça was just sip neat, right? There are very few cocktails, um, but there is one in particular that I enjoy. And then there's a twist on it that, that I like. It's kind of the Brazilian take on the Manhattan. It's called the Habo de Gallo, which means tail of the rooster, a.k.a. cocktail. And originally it was equal parts barrel-aged cachaça and vermouth, sweet red vermouth. In Sao Paulo, it, uh, vermouth was replaced with chinar. And, and then when we launched our brand, uh, that drink was adapted by various West Coast bartenders from LA to Portland and Seattle to where it's a mix of things. It's barrel-aged cachaça, vermouth, chinar, and bitters. And it is in the, in the style of Manhattan. It's delightful. I love it. And I, I modify that, maybe modify the Toronto. It's just a variety of different twists in uh, a drink with barrel-aged um, cachaça, hibiscus grenadine, fernet, and orange bitters. And uh, that is one I call the Cornerstone. It's one of my very first cocktails. It's been around for a decade now. And it's, it's, I think it's, it's complex and elevated, but it, for the first time in history, it, it kind of highlights Brazil and Argentina together because there was a lot of Fernet made in Argentina, in consumed Argentina. <laughs> uh, one of the few incidents where they like each other and, and intersect pleasantly in, in the glass. Uh, but I personally also just, I really enjoy Boilermakers because they are very pure. I get to taste the cachaça. And there's a lot of beer in the world. It's very easy to pair uh, a, a, an ace spirit with a beer. So uh, I try to find different kinds of things. Here at my bar that you see behind me, I actually have a cocktail menu in my home bar. It has a name. And there's always a, a boilermaker, a cachaça boilermaker on, on the menu. And right now I have one with our highest proof cachaça ever, a one-year-old 48% cachaça, maximum allowed by Brazilian law, that's paired with a rattler. Uh, I just love that combination. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Rattlers, so I will have to try to get my hands <laughs> yeah, on right. some Novo. Luckily, our, our uh, liquor stores out in Vegas have a wide array of things, and I know they have some Novo yeah. Fogo I can go check out. Yeah, speaking great. of the products, is there anything we should be on the lookout for? Anything that you recently launched? Yeah, we're in the process of launching a new RTD. We have a, a line of sparkling caipirinhas that we've had out for a couple of years actually for a number of years, but they've can continue to evolve as the American palate evolved. And we're trying really hard to reflect cultural, Brazilian cultural heritage. With, we didn't want to affect that, but also want to meet these modern day drinking trends in the United States with low carbs and low ABV. And the Spartan Capitanians are lime, mango, and passion fruit. And uh, we're actually launching a variety pack in, a, in what's called the Tree Keeper Package designed by our partner and friend, Stefan Fry, a Seattle goalkeeper in the MLS, and who's also an artist. And uh, also uh, we're launching an old-fashioned highball that is probably the first barrel-aged cachaça RTD ever. Uh, and it's, it's just, just what, you, what you heard. It's barrel-aged cachaça, vanilla, syrup, orange and aromatic bitters, and, and, and some water. It's 9% alcohol. And it tastes like a, like a lengthened old-fashioned, made cachaça, and it's carbonated, and it's delightful. So all of these are coming to the market in COVID ways. You know, it takes like nine months to go from, right. from a production to actually in the stores these days. But we're, we're here and there. Uh, we have availability listed on the website, too. 
And I think I saw the packaging for the the Manhattan, and it really looked like a satin black can. Like it's really cool looking. Yeah, it's a. It, I we wanted to make it cool looking. It's it's a black can that has a picture of a, of a vanilla flower on it, and it's trying to be just kind of genderless, seasonless. It's trying to appeal in different ways to different people because I think that it is tropical and floral, but it's also punchy and has the flavor of the vanillin in the, in the oak barrels. You know, it's many different things, but altogether it comes, it comes together super nicely. I'm very proud of how, how, how we did this. And it's a, it's a new way for us to introduce barrel-aged cachaça to the masses that probably have never bought a bottle of barrel-aged cachaça at the grocery store because it's never been sold at the grocery store. But this allows us to get into those doors with the cans next to the bottle on the shelf, just like we've been selling our Spartan Petrinias with the bottle of the silver cachaça next to it. So before we go, can you tell us a bit of trivia? I asked some of my guests, and because it's cachaça and it's Nova Fogo, I thought this would be a, a perfect candidate. But is there something that you can tell us about your brand or cachaça in general that most people don't know. Let, let me tell you about the history of cachaça um, and how cachaça led to the creation of rum, actually. It's a, it's a quick a historical story that goes back to the 1500s. The Portuguese and the Dutch had invaded the coast of Brazil. Naturally, eventually, they went to war with each other. The Portuguese won and the Dutch had to flee north. But at this point, both of these uh, people were making cachaça from sugarcane. They had come from the West Indies. And the Dutch took their stills and some sugarcane plants. As they evaded north, they went into Suriname, Guyana, eventually into the Caribbean, especially Barbados, brought their cane with them, planted the cane, and started to make spirit again. But then they realized that instead of uh, they still freshly pressed sugarcane juice they could do from molasses, which was cheaper, and the Dutch were very ingenious. And so rum was created around 1630 or so, about 100 years after cachaça was created below. And what happened next was even more fascinating. Barbados at the time was, uh, well, it was an English colony already, and the English did not have any spirits. That was before gin. They did not have wine. They had ale. But they kind of adopted Caribbean rum as their national spirit. The British Navy started to take barrels of rum to the UK. And then around the world, the British Navy became the rum ambassador to the world, which is why everybody knows what rum is. Uh, but for the longest time, nobody knew what cachaça was outside of Brazil because the Portuguese did not do the same thing with, with cachaça. They had their, uh, their brandies in Portugal. They had wine. They did not need cachaça back on the old continent. They left there. Of course, Brazil grew into, grew into a gigantic country. Cachaça grew into a gigantic category, but only in the last two decades it got to uh, go outside of Brazil. So we're, you know, the brands that are now selling cachaça are trying to be the British Navy for the category and trying to spread it around the world because it's coming 500 years late, but um, it is an interesting thing. You know, it's a... The world was interconnected four or five hundred years ago, just as it is now. How can people connect with you and Nova Fogo? Yeah, Instagram is great. Uh, at Nova Fogo is our handle. And my personal one is Tiger Mountain Tales. I live on Tiger Mountain in Issaquah, Washington. And Tales stands for cocktails and also 
tiger and also my two cats. Ab tiger mountain tails. Ragos, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. David, I appreciate your interest as well. Thanks for telling our story. Thank you for listening to the Bar Hacks podcast produced by KRG Hospitality and hosted by me, David Clem. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Follow us on Twitter at Ask Bar Hacks and Instagram at Bar Hacks. Talk to you soon.